Cameron Silsby, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part five in the series, You Were Dead, Letter to the Church in Colossae. A peasant Jewish rabbi was executed in a backwaters part of the Roman Empire some 2,000 years ago. Fast forward about 20 years, and a guy locked in a prison was penning a letter to a group of people in the city of Colossae who believed that they had been saved by this executed rabbi. If that seems bizarre, just wait until you read what Paul claims Jesus did and who he was. Uh, Let me start off this evening by having a moment of confession with you all. This is just between you and me here and all the people that will be listening to the podcast. I am placing myself in your hands. So, uh, you know, hold this with confidence. I spend a lot of time on Wikipedia. Yeah, thank you, yes. Tristan, was that you? It was you, yep, I figured. Uh, Maybe too much, depends on who you ask. Uh, It starts out innocently enough, just looking up an article on something I need to research or something I'm curious about. But then there's hyperlinks to the other stuff I don't know about. Um, And, you know, I need to read those articles, too, in order to kind of grasp and understand this original article I'm supposed to be reading. And then there's hyperlinks that just look interesting. And so I have to click on those and, like, read or skim those. So, um, you know, at the end of this, I've read the original article. It's taken me, like, an hour, and I've read or skimmed, like, a dozen other articles. And that's Wikipedia for you. But, uh, you know, I have learned a thing or two, like uh, the germ theory of disease, which, man, 2020, 2021 is really a time to understand the germ theory of disease. I didn't know about it. You don't learn science at seminary. I, I had no idea. You know, I knew about germs. Anyways, um, so it's, it's this idea that has helped us develop an understanding of bacteria and viruses and that they cause disease, um, which... Previously, the prevailing theory was um, that there was just bad-smelling air that made us sick, which was from uh, some like medieval writers would be like, hey, careful when the wind blows the swamp air into your town and it starts to stink. That's when you know you're going to get sick. Um, so, you know, we, we might be having these conversations about masks and social distancing and vaccinations that are frustrating um, or confusing or, or whatever, But think about if we had the theory of bad air causing disease, and that was still prevalent. We'd be talking about noxious smells and stinky, rotting organic material as the source of this current plague. Um, You know, that theory was actually set aside for the germ theory of disease only about 140 years ago, which is not that long ago in the grand scheme of things. Now, as, as a church, we are currently studying the ancient letter written to the church in the city of Colossae, written by Paul. Uh, This letter is almost 2,000 years old. You know, a lot has changed in 140 years, let alone 2,000 years. It was written in a different language, Koine Greek, um, in a different culture and country, It was written to Christians coming out of a culture that would seem very bizarre to our modern Western culture, at least on on the surface. 
So before we dive into tonight's text, I want to tell you a story. It's a fictionalized story that has been written by yours truly, who else? Uh, And my point in telling this story is to give you an opportunity to put yourself into the world of the first century, in the city of Colossae. You know, the context and way of life that Christians would have been coming out of. I think it's probably better than just listing a bunch of facts about Colossae. So, sit back right now and take a breath, relax for a moment, and imagine that this is your story. The fever came about a week ago. Your oldest brother, the one who ran the family small business and made all the connections with the customers, had been bedridden soon after. In the beginning, he was coherent, but lately he's been passing in and out of consciousness, and when he is conscious, his words don't make much sense. His breathing is slowing, Prayers and incantations have been recited, incense burned, but nothing has helped. The terror of the sickness and, and, and the disaster it means to your family had been seeping into your bones further and further as you watched your brother getting more and more sick. Your brother had been in the prime of his life, a wife and young kids, He was your brother, employer, confidant, someone you looked up to for wisdom and guidance, for approval. He was the face of your family. He had a good reputation as a businessman. Customers honored him with spreading a good report about his work throughout your neighborhood. Business rivals were jealous of his success. What went wrong? Your whole family had been faithful and consistent in attending every festival to make all the expensive sacrifices sacrifices to the gods. You were careful to say the meticulous, repetitive prayers and incantations. The shrines to your household gods were well kept and cared for. You feel rage rising inside of you as you list out all of the ways you were careful to appease the gods. Why did the gods turn their gaze on your brother? Why would they strike him down? A knot starts to tighten in your stomach as as a thought comes to the forefront of your mind. The dread of it washes through your body and the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. Maybe your brother angered a spirit. Maybe your whole family had. Were you next to be struck down? Should you desperately seek out a prophecy or an omen to uh, find out? You remember that your neighbor claimed to have spiritual insight from some sort of angelic creature that he worshipped. Was that real? Would that provide an answer? Your mind is beginning to race. Is it a spirit that's mad? What if a business rival had put a curse on your brother? You need to find out to have a chance to break the curse, but that could be expensive and take time. You're sure that they're just waiting for him to die so that they can accuse him of being cursed by the gods, and that'll scare off a lot of your business. 
You remember that your cousin has a neighbor who joined a new secretive cult who worshipped a new god, uh, what was his name, uh, Crestus or Christus or something like that. Uh, there were rumors that they could somehow make angry spirits flee, but you shudder at the thought of those sorts of secretive cults and their bizarre practices done behind closed doors. They were more trouble than any help they might offer. The anger and fear eventually gives over to despair. Your brother will die. Your family business will most likely be ruined. You are helpless. Go ahead and stand up as I read tonight's text as a show of reference and respect for the scriptures. This is Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 20. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and be seated. We are dropping in mid-conversation to what Paul is writing. This letter to the church in the city of Colossae was intended to be read out loud in one sitting, but because we are merciful to you, we decided not to do a 10-hour sermon to cover the whole letter in one sitting. Instead, we're taking it in small chunks. Uh, we miss out on the panoramic view that, that, that was Paul's original plan, but our more methodical approach does give us the advantage of slowing down and savoring the text, turning over the words in our minds, examining each sentence and paragraph, and opening ourselves over and over again to these words that Paul wrote as he was carried along by God's Spirit. Paul has been explaining to, to the Colossians how he's been praying for them. And remember, uh, from a couple uh, verses back last week, we read that Paul wrote, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God, on and on and on he goes. We covered all of this last week. So if you missed it, go back and listen to the podcast. Paul lists a bunch of stuff that he's praying for the Colossians about and lands at and giving joyful thanks to the Father. He's praying that they would have gratitude and joy and express that to the Father. Why? Because of what the Father has done on their behalf. They are qualified by the Father and given an inheritance in his kingdom. But that's not all the Father has done. Paul continues on, verse 13, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
Paul just can't help himself. Uh, he's Jewish through and through, grew up listening to the stories of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. As a Pharisee, he had most likely the whole thing committed to memory, and now he's convinced that what God started in the Hebrew Bible is being carried forward through the life, death, resurrection, and now kingship of Jesus. So as he puts ink to papyrus and writes this letter to the Colossians, the stories of the scriptures seep out of him flavoring his writing. For a Jewish person, the, the word redemption brought up the most significant salvation story from the Old Testament. Any guesses? Redemption. Say it loud, because I might have a hard time hearing you. Exodus, yes, yes, great, the Exodus. Israel, an unimpressive group of enslaved Semitic shepherds redeemed and rescued out of slavery under the horrific oppression and economic and uh, under the under horrific oppression from the economic and military superpower Egypt this Israel was redeemed out of a kingdom of oppression to a new kingdom in a new land Perhaps uh, Exodus chapter 6 is the specific text that sat at the back of Paul's mind as he was writing. Let me read it to you guys. This is Yahweh speaking to Moses while Israel, while, while Israel was enslaved. Yahweh said to Moses, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. The Colossian church was uh, both Jew and Gentile. Uh, they were part of the Roman Empire, which was the military and economic superpower of their time. So how, how does the, the exodus connect? Paul uses the imagery of the Exodus to inform the Colossians of what the Father has done for them when he, quote-unquote, saved them, rescued, brought, or another way to translate that is, is transported into a new kingdom, redeemed. You know, there's redemption, there's forgiveness of sins, no longer under the oppression of darkness and sin, helpless to the ebbs and flows of the evil within themselves and all around them. The Father has rescued them. He has rescued us. Now, this grates against some cultural sensitivities. This idea that humans need to be rescued, that they are either under the power and dominion of darkness or they have been rescued by the Father and are now citizens of the kingdom of light. There's, I think, at least two big reasons that uh, this can feel hard to accept. The first is that this sort of language about people in darkness and people in the light has been used to marginalize and demonize others, especially in America and especially in the last 40 or 50 years. As in, if you're not a Christian, you are in the icky, scary world. Regard worldly people with fear and suspicion. 
regard art and entertainment and ideas from the world as corrupting and dangerous. But Paul actually uses this idea of darkness and light not to paint those not following Jesus as others to be feared and and worthy of our suspicion. It's a tragedy. It's a cause for grief. It's motivation to tell people about Jesus, about the chance for rescue. Because you know the darkness. As a part of humanity, you were once enslaved there. But now, you've been rescued. I think this also grates against our sensibilities because our culture typically believes that humans are good. Uh, There are lots of good people who aren't Christians. There are neighbors, friends, family, coworkers. You know, they don't seem to be in need of rescue. They help out when they're able. They recycle diligently. They're fun to be around. They're good people. So let me help you just for a moment to untangle this in your minds a little bit. Uh, Think of a good person or people in your life who don't follow Jesus. Uh, The person who pops up in my mind is a good friend that I've known for years. He and his wife, uh, my wife and I just love them. We enjoy being around them. They don't follow Jesus, though. So think think of that person for you. Now, instead of categorizing them as good, Use a different word, like dependable, likable, admirable, fun, pleasant, whatever it is. I think we can get confused because the English word good can mean so many different things, and it's so broad. Can humans, apart from Jesus, be good in the sense that they are valuable, likable, do admirable things, have positive qualities and characteristics? Yes, good, yeah. Good theology, guys. Yes, absolutely. Humans are made in the image of God, created with inherent value and dignity and ability and purpose to reflect God to the world. Those things are visible and tangible to some degree, even when someone is far from God. So yes, humans have inherent goodness. Are humans good in the sense that they are not in need of rescue from the power of dominion and darkness? No. Every single human is trapped by sin and participates in the evil of the world. Every good person far from God has the image of God in them warped and muddied and defiled. And humans are helpless to fix the problem. We need to be rescued. Humans are a complicated mess, gifted by God and warped by our own evil and brokenness. We need to be rescued. Now, back at the text, you might miss what Paul is happening, but he goes ahead and inserts a really sly segue here in in the text. He mentions the kingdom of the Son that the Father loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And now, he's going to riff on Jesus for a bit. So it, it might seem a bit jarring. Remember, he's talking about giving joyful thanks to the Father because of what the Father has done for us. And now he seems to wander down a rabbit trail talking about Jesus. 
But what he's actually doing is setting up the theological foundation for the entire letter. He's laying down what is true so that he can draw from it, teaching and correcting the Colossian church as he does so. Again, it's pretty sly. You get a little hint of where this letter is heading right from the beginning in in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul opened the letter by writing, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. The phrase in Christ or in him is repeated well over a dozen times in this short letter. If you include the phrase with Christ, it's even more than that. Remember, the word Christ is not Jesus's last name. It's a royal title, Messiah, King. To the listener paying attention, it can be radically subversive to the claims of cosmic power and authority made by Roman emperors and subversive to the political cohesion of the vast Roman Empire. It's a threat to the religious fabric of the community, which is also intertwined with the economic fabric of the community. Jesus the Messiah is a threat. Being in Christ, in the King, in, in the Messiah, is a charged and loaded phrase. So the next handful of verses we're going to look at paints a very distinct picture of who, who this is, of who Jesus the Messiah is. In fact, regarding this section, there is intense debate whether Paul is writing or quoting an early church hymn or poetry, and I read dozens of pages by various theologians about whether this is a hymn or poetry or poem or just part of Paul's discourse, and I came away with two things from my, my reading. One, I'm very confident of. Reading a bunch of theologians arguing about what is and isn't poetry is probably the most mind-numbing reading I've ever encountered up to this point in my life. Arguments about meter and syllable counts and all that sort of stuff. And listen, guys, trust me, I've been to seminary and I know bad writing. This takes the cake. The second thing I'm only somewhat confident about is that we are about to embark on dissecting some of the earliest Christian poetry and hymns ever written. So I was convinced. I think it's poetry. I guess the writing uh, worked. Uh, Singing songs and reciting poetry and liturgy is one of the oldest Christian practices that is still happening all over the world 2,000 years later. The beginning of this poetic prose starts like this. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Two things to point out. Jesus, the Son of God, is believed to be the physical representation of God. Uh, Judaism was well known in the Roman Empire to have no images of their God, Yahweh, uh, not even housed in the most holy place in the temple at Jerusalem, Famously, some Romans wondered if Jewish people were, in fact, atheists. For a non-Jewish pagan, they would wonder, if if God cannot be seen, how can he be known? 
Jesus of Nazareth is the way to see God. He perfectly reflects God, the way in which humanity was intended to reflect God to creation. And when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, what he doesn't mean is that the Son was created first in all of creation. Uh, The Son of God wasn't created. He doesn't have a beginning point. This idea of the Son being firstborn is about position, role, prominence, rank. The Son takes the head position over creation. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. You would be hard-pressed to find the Son in the, within the creation account given in Genesis 1. So what in the world is Paul talking about the Son being an integral part of creating everything? Uh, So just to see, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. This is how the story of the scriptures begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Okay, stop there. Uh, Did you miss him? The sun is in there. Look down one more time, do you see him? And no, it's not the creation of the S-U-N sun, that's not what I'm saying. That's not till like the fourth day or something like that. Okay, so here, maybe this will help. So uh, turn in your Bibles again. Sorry to have you flipping around, but turn in your Bibles back into the New Testament to the Gospel according to John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Look to see what one of Jesus' earliest apprentices said about him. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, sound familiar? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Genesis 1, and God said, let there be light. There's the sun. The words of God that have explosive creative power. In Jewish thought, there was a lot of discussion about this shadowy, enigmatic character in the scriptures, this eternal aspect of the creator Yahweh, sometimes referred to as the word or logos, or or referred to as wisdom. Paul uses that Jewish thinking and imports it to the Son. He is the word. He is the eternal, active wisdom of God. Jesus is not just a really interesting teacher. 
He's not a Jewish spiritual guru. He's not just a prophet. He's not an important angel among other important angels. He is not a god among the pantheon of gods to be worshipped. He is the eternal God, creator of everything. Which means he is over every created thing physical and non-physical, tangible and intangible, and also over any other spiritual or human power. Any spiritual power behind the popular gods like Artemis or Zeus or regional folk religion gods or, or the spirits or any power that Caesar himself claimed as his own, he is over and above it all. And one way or another, every other power will bend its knee to the sun. One theologian, uh, Scott McKnight, said what this would communicate to the followers of Jesus in Colossae. He said, quote, the son who redeems is the creator son, and therefore there are in the world absolutely no threats to his sovereignty or redemption. There's absolutely no threats to his sovereignty or redemption. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. These three verses, uh, verses 15, 16, and 17, are the first part of Paul's poem. And, and he hammers home at this point to the Colossians. The Son is the king of creation. He is the center point of it all, the center point of creation. And he's more than that, too. The poem shifts at this point to look at the Son from another angle. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. The Son isn't just over creation in a cosmic sense, but he's the leader, the, the head of the church, of God's people living in the day-to-day -day rhythms of life and existence. He forged the path of resurrection, beating back death and clearing the way for us to follow after him. The universal experience of humanity, death. We all die the cessation of your physical body, the decomposition of the organic materials that make you up. Your accomplishments and worries are slowly lost to time. In a handful of generations, your name probably won't even be remembered. And even if it is, you won't know. It won't matter to you. Death always wins. Until the sun paved the way to resurrection. Now, your life has eternal meaning and purpose, hope. What you do today and tomorrow and the next day matters. It won't be forgotten. You will not be forgotten. Your life through the sun has the final say over death. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. The son wasn't just part of God. 
as if God could only tolerate dipping his big toe in the muck and the mire that is humanity. He was pleased to have his fullness in the Son, all of the creator God inhabiting Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In the Son, through the Son, God is fixing everything, all of creation, Not just humans need help. Things aren't right. Something has gone terribly wrong, and the Son has made the ultimate move to fix it. The cross isn't this uh, get-out-of-jail-free card. That's what it can sound like uh, when we talk about it in Christian circles. You know, I did bad stuff, Jesus died on the cross, I said a magical prayer, and now I'm forgiven for all the bad stuff. It might be helpful to think of the cross and the death of Jesus of Nazareth as a cosmic event, the reverberations of which we get caught up in. It's much bigger than you or me. The event ripples through the very fabric of reality, and these ripples will culminate in the reconciliation of creation itself, what the New Testament describes as New creation. And like the sound or movement that begins the process of an avalanche, once it, happening, once it starts happening, there's no stopping it. Things will be made right. And the execution of a Jewish peasant rabbi is the moment that starts and guarantees the culmination of this. The beginning of new creation started with Jesus of Nazareth walking out of his tomb. The sun is the king of creation, and the son is the king of the new creation. Think for a moment back to that fictional narrative I had you guys listen to. Um, Do you think that this son, the son of God, sounds like good news to a person in that position? Angry, confused, fearful, helpless, The world of Colossae was awash with gods and spirits and angels and magic, all of it giving explanations about life and existence, all of it practiced as a means to have some control, some say over the chaos of life. We tend to label people in other cultures and other times that believe in spirits and gods as superstitious, like a sports fan that wears the same unwashed lucky jersey to help his team win. But this stuff was about success and failure, life and death. Spirituality seeped into every facet of life, Uh, food, business, relationships, politics. um, The Roman political elite loved it because spirituality bonded the vast Roman Empire together. There was no sacred or secular, spiritual and unspiritual. The lines were blurred. Everything was interconnected. Uh, Scholars Michael Byrd and N.T. Wright in their book, The New Testament in Its World, write this, quote, ancient religion 
involved a world of temples and sacrifices, patronages and prophecies, shrines and groves, incense and garlands, processions and prayers, music and magic, omens and oracles, even inspecting entrails. It was filled with rituals for keeping the city safe, the home secure, healing the sick, and calming the stormy seas. So it's a little unfair to label them as simply superstitious. Like you and I, they wanted to survive and thrive. And spirituality was a vital part of that. Not, not just an optional subject to dabble in on the side. Uh, stories and myths help them to understand how to interact with the spiritual world and, and how to impact it as certainly it would impact their own world and lives. We uh, believe myths and stories too in order to make sense of the world and ourselves and how to live and shape life around us. We don't assign these stories to particular gods, but they function quite similarly. Again, from uh, Michael Byrd and N.T. Wright, uh, they quote, it's a little bit of a long one, but stick with me. Uh, These days, the, the main myths by which people seem to live consist of a vague belief in progress, a number of mor- mor- morality tales about the evils of the last century, the 1960s virtues of personal autonomy and sexual freedom, the post-September 11th fear of militant religion, and the rampant consumerism fostered by the giant multinational technology companies and their new technologies. These myths are expressed in reality TV shows, downloadable apps, blockbuster movies, and the 24-hour news cycle, all of which provide a symbolic world of values and meaning in which we are unconsciously immersed. Much like the ancient inhabitants of Colossae, the, the myths and stories you believe are often underneath the surface, assumptions that are never challenged or even vocalized. They, pa- they pass by you as you scroll through your Instagram or Facebook or Twitter feed on your smartphone. They are repeated and recreated ad nauseum in conversations between friends and pictures taken while on vacation and through endless streaming options. These myths and stories are not benign. They whisper to you. You're an ugly creature. But if you buy this trendy top, it will cover your ugliness. You're a pathetic failure, but if you have the right degree or job title, no one will ever know. Your life is meaningless and you don't matter to anyone, but if you post carefully edited pictures of your travel adventures and vacations, you'll make your own meaning. You are going to die and nothing you do will be remembered. So do whatever you can feel uh, to uh, do whatever you can do to feel good while you're around. Our myths and stories are deeply entwined with us as individuals, us as a culture, in our power and politics and money. They are how we make sense of life and how we attempt to control the chaos of life. But you've been rescued. You are no longer under the authority and power of those myths and stories, whatever they are. You are under the authority of a new king and a new kingdom. You have new stories to believe. 
You have a God who is your leader and has paved the way to resurrection. Your, your trauma, fears, failures, the things you feel trapped by are no longer the defining thing about you. You are in Christ. You are a part of the king of creation and new creation. That's what now defines you and will ultimately define you. Your life is now taking on the beginning of the coming new creation. You work through trauma and fears and failures with Jesus, oftentimes in community or in a counselor's office, allowing Jesus to bring healing to those things as glimpses of new creation, allowing him to break the shackles of destructive control they have over you because you are no longer a slave to darkness. You are no longer a slave to oppression. You study the scriptures and pray and fast and practice silence and solitude, solitude to draw near to the Son, to be shaped by Him, to focus your attention on Him and His love for you. In the kingdom of the Son that the Father loves, you experience the freedom that is found in God's love for you. The new creation is starting now in you and in I. Not perfectly, certainly not in totality. It certainly doesn't always feel like it's happening. Sometimes it's really exciting uh, or wonderful, breathtaking, exhilarating. And other times it feels rote and mundane and frustratingly slow. But you're not alone in that. And neither am I. We have each other. Walking with Jesus together, we are a group of people who have been rescued and redeemed. We're all citizens of a new kingdom under the authority of a new king. And so we live this out together. We help each other to live this out together because we need help. Some of us need to learn that we need help and how to receive help. And we need to help others as well. Some of us need to learn how to help others. When we are together, centered on Jesus, like we are right now in this moment, it is an act of new creation. It is something that we are participating in. As you are sitting here right now listening to me talk, you are actively participating in what God is doing in this moment. My words are hitting your mind and your heart, interacting with your story. God's spirit is speaking, speaking and whispering thoughts to you right now. You react to this whole internalized process as I'm still standing here speaking. You are reacting with obedience or resolution or doubt or frustration or, or something. However you are reacting, God is with you and working in you right now. New creation. Look around. New creation is actually happening right now all throughout this room. It's happening each time you show up at community, each time you show up as a group of redeemed, forgiven people with the Son of God working new creation in each of you in similar and also in some unique ways. There's really nothing else quite like it in the world when followers of Jesus are together.
Would we be a church that gathers together with intentionality and awareness of what God has, has done and is doing? Let me pray. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.